Open your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 3 again. Last Sunday morning, we talked about the times of refreshing. It came from this verse. Let me just quickly review again what has already been said the last few weeks leading up to what I want to say today. In Acts chapter 3, in verse 19, he says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. We began a few weeks ago with the subject of repentance. I don't want to go through all that again, but sorrow of heart. When you begin to see what you have done with your life, the way you have lived your selfish life, one day God confronts you, and he makes known to you, makes real to you, just how off-center from God you are, just how sinful, not all your sins, you don't remember all of them, but just your sinfulness. It never bothered you before until the day that God brought godly sorrow in your life. Remember that? For it is godly sorrow that brings repentance, and it's the goodness of God in Romans 2 that brings repentance. God confronted you. You and God had a meeting at a time you weren't expecting it. And it made you sorry. You were ashamed of the first time in your life of your sins. I remember my own life when that happened as a basketball coach, 28 years old. I know the feeling. I know the moment. It's easy for me to describe it to you because I know that probably you're in the same boat I was in. One day. One day it happened. I'd probably heard it before. It didn't bother me, but one day, the day that God marked out, I saw my sinfulness, and I began to weep. I didn't try. I wasn't putting anything on. I was afraid somebody would see me cry. But I was brokenhearted because of my sin, and there was an offer of salvation that day, and I turned in my mind. That's what the word means. I, I changed my mind about where I want to live and who I am, and I turned to God, and I went forward, as we used to call it. I went forward and knelt and asked God to forgive me. That's all I could do. My sins were so many, and I was so embarrassed and ashamed of them because it was God I sinned against. He gave me all the air I wanted to breathe and things and so forth, but I disregarded him. I had no place for God. I went to church my whole life. I had no interest in God. I knew there was something to it, but I didn't want it to mess up my growing up years, you know, to get religious. And I saw that one day, the whole mental state, the whole nasty thing. And I was so ashamed. I just prayed that he would forgive me for being as bad as I figured I'd been. And he did. But you see, you can have a moment of grief in your life about what you've done or what you said or how things turned out or the chaos you've caused. But that doesn't mean your life will change. It just means you've met the Lord. But see, it's followed by conversion. We talked about conversion. Conversion is literally a turning around. You were going this way, and once you confronted God, he said, you can't go this way anymore. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you cannot keep going that way. That mode of life 
will bring judgment. And God is just, and he has to judge sin. So he says, either I turn you around or I have to judge you. So he turns us around, and conversion comes. And conversion is looking at who knows what's going to happen. But you're a new creature in Christ. The Bible says old things are passed away and all things become new. And you don't know how to progress this way. You've never done it before. It's a little bit frightening. Smart as you are with all that education you got, as well-to-do as you are, and yet God is going to lead you in a way you've never been. That's where the message of faith comes in. You've got to take him one day at a time. You've got to trust him that where you're going, what he shows you to do is the only right way for you to go. Anything else is not right. Though it looks good and it seems good, it sounds good, and a lot of other people are doing other things. Remember the verse that says, there is a way that seems right, but the end of that way is death. And modern man will argue with God until the judgment bar. Well, that, why, that, why, come on, God. I mean, we're trying. God didn't say, I didn't call you to try. I called you to walk this way. There is no other way. The way that leads to life is through Jesus Christ. And like you said, if you're going to learn about it, live it. Because otherwise, you're in trouble. Again, there is a way that seems right. Only one way is right. But you begin to live a converted life, and obviously your sins are blotted out. They're wiped away. There's nothing held against you anymore. All those horrible things you did, it's all gone. That's not held against you anymore. You're free. You're a new creature. You're ready to live a new life. And then the times of refreshing are promised. We looked at that last week. The times of refreshing you find in Isaiah 28 refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Something that was for the New Testament saints. Jesus said in John 7 concerning the Holy Spirit that he was not yet given. His appearance was all through the Old Testament. He was here and there and this and that and inspired this and inspired that. But he was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And he said, I must be raised and go to the Father from which I will receive the Spirit. I will send him to you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come again. And when the Holy Spirit comes, the church began a whole new life that had never been known by the Old Testament is now known by the New. A life in which Jesus becomes the focus of your life. The times of refreshing, Bonnie asked me if I was going to go on that another trip. It'd be easy to because there's so much that God has designed in life to refresh us. There are so many weary pilgrims, as they're called. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And the rest that he gives and the refreshing that is promised, you'll find in Isaiah chapter 28. This is the refreshing and this is the rest, it says. And it's the day of Pentecost, which it was pointing to. You find that in 1 Corinthians 14, 21. Now, today, let's say this. If when the church begins, if we as a people, professing Christians, 
telling about our experience. Oh, yes. If I ask any of you here, can you remember when you got saved? Could you remember? Do you remember when or where? Was it a moment you've never forgotten? Can you remember it? When you and God met, first time, real, wow, and a transformation took place. Can you remember it? If a man has never been converted, he's had a lot of moments he felt sorry for his sins. And we've all had that. Oh, man. You know, you get drunk last night, you hurt somebody, you said something, wrecked a car, tore something up, got in trouble. Oh, you feel sorry. But chances are you'll do it again. Until there is a turnaround. You know the story. But if we only accept the fact that I felt bad about, you know, I go to church, my heart's good, I really want to do right, I'm not a bad person, I don't hurt people, and I mess up every now and then, who's perfect? But, and you start talking like that. The next thing you know, you begin to look at a church that is run by unconverted people or people trying to live an unconverted life. We begin to develop a system, a way to live. We call it a man-made system. A man knows that the word of God is not favorable to most people, that it's so demanding. They say nobody can live that lofty a life. So he begins to modify the scriptures. He begins to lower the standard. The Bible describes this as resting the scriptures. In Romans 1, he changes the truth of God into a lie because what he says is not what the Bible says. But people would like more what he says than what the Bible says. Give me an educated man to tell me that the Bible didn't mean what it says so that I can have my cake and eat it too, and I'll be in your church. Man is like that. He is naturally inclined to look for the easy way and something that doesn't cost him so much. And this is what he wants. And he will naturally, a natural man who receives not the things of the Spirit, he didn't even want to receive the Spirit. He's rejected that. And everything else that follows will be wrong. Anyway, he begins to rest the scriptures. He begins, as that verse says in 2 Timothy 2, he says, for the time will come. Remember this verse. I'm sure you've heard this. For the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. Now, that's always been to some degree in the whole church age. There's always been those who balk at the word. You're legalistic. You're too hard. That's too narrow. There's always been that, always. But I think this reference in this verse really identifies the age that is coming, and I think the age that is here now. This is the last age. If for no other reason, just historically, the things that are happening in this world with the electronic age and the war age and the ability to destroy man has never been like it is now. The knowledge has been increased, as Daniel said. Never has an age experienced that like this. A hundred years ago, we were still in horses and buggies. We had a few cars, maybe a train or two. A hundred years ago, maybe 115, the turn of the century, last century. But boy, and just in the last hundred years, we've gone from riding in buggies 
to going to the moon to more than we even know now. There's electronic age. You can train your thumb to talk to somebody on the other side of the world instantly. And man has taken that. He can blow things up by just moving his thumbs around. What an age, a perilous times that, are, that we're in. And if there's ever a time a church needs to hear the truth and not be played with and messed with and try to be entertained, it's today. It's today. Because this generation, I think, is the last one. And it's not going to be easy what's ahead of us. It's not going to be easy. It was never intended to be easy. But there is always a way that God has given us to get through it. Always. But back to this other thing, this day he said the time will come, I think as we're there, that men will not endure sound doctrine. They really don't want to hear it. If you're going to preach that way, I'm not going to that church. That's fine. Do that. But he says they will heap to themselves teachers. That's what it said. They will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They look for some so who wants to make them feel good? I mean, comfort and happiness is the two things of this age. Make me comfortable, make me happy. Now, in the church, when unconverted people begin to run the whole thing and psychology begins to take over and people begin to manipulate, and you read this through the book of Jude, people begin to abuse people and use people and seek to get their money or their support. They'll tell you whatever it takes for them to get that. They will say it, and people love it. In the day of Jeremiah, God said about his priest in the end of chapter 5. He said, you know, the priests and the teachers of the law, they do this and do that, and they're misleading you and everything. You're going to be judged. He said, and my people love it so. My people love it so. But then he ends that verse by saying, but what will they do in the end when suddenly it's over? And there you are. You can't turn back and change or fix anything. It's over. You're doomed. Somebody snared you with the words of his mouth. You followed something that was misleading. You were deceived. And the end of your life is a tragedy. But it doesn't have to be like that with us. It does not have to be. And what I'm saying today isn't true because I say it. You don't have to believe a thing I'm saying. But you have to believe what God says. That's what you have to believe. When they begin to have itching ears, the next thing he said was, they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to fables. Fables is the word muthos, from which we get the word myth. Man's stories, man's versions. And I think that's happened. I think this psychological attitude in the church, they all come on. Hey, God, come on, man. Everybody knows. Come on, come on. And so you're given a life to live that is far less than the life that God describes that we are to live. If the Bible says this is the way walking in it, then we have no other right way. Would you agree with that? I mean, you can live a way that satisfies you, but it won't satisfy God. What is it about the Bible that we just don't want to hear what he's saying? Or every time we hear something we don't like, we say, well, that's his opinion. Man, by nature, listen to me, if he's not converted, if he doesn't turn around, he argues with God. 
He debates with God. He finds fault with everything that doesn't line up with his desires and his directions. And that's the way it works. Modern Christianity and modern man gives you nothing to forsake. There is no cross to bear. Come on, that was for another time, and, you know, that didn't even mean what this said today. You don't have to bear a cross and overcome and die to self. Come on. Those things were only intended to tell us that God wants us to be good people. No, I think it meant what it said, didn't it? Except you take up the cross daily, you're not his. Except you love him more than anybody, your mother, your father, even your own life. You can't be his disciple. Are you serious, Lord, about that? He's very serious. You see, he is serious because this, you were doomed. How many of you know that you were doomed in this world? All we like sheep had gone astray. Nobody was right. All of us were doomed. In all of our goodness and all of our churchianity, we were all doomed. And one day, God, in this repentance thing, God brought you out of the miry clay. Remember? Lifted you up out of that miry clay. You nasty thing. You, oh, thing. And he picked you. I wouldn't have picked you, but he did. I wouldn't have picked me, and you probably wouldn't either, but he did anyway. And he sets us in his courts, and he plants us. And everything, as I said, everything now begins to change. That spiritual activity that brings refreshing begins to relieve us of trying to figure out how to live because he shows it to us now. He inspires us that we don't have to struggle in prayer. Oh, God, trying to get something. He said, just use your faith. When you pray, believe. Oh, that's too easy. That's too easy. No. He said, when you pray, believe you have received and you shall. So that's the end of your struggle. You can begin to rest in the Lord now and wait on the Lord to bring what he said. And while you wait, as he said in Philippians 4, you can be thankful. Why are you thankful? Because I believe God heard my prayer. Well, if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have what we asked for. We can rest. We can quit striving on trying to get God to do something. Maybe if I fast, maybe if I give, maybe if I try harder, maybe if I go on trips, maybe, maybe, maybe. maybe. No. Just take him at his word. If he said this, do that. If he said go this way, go that way. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything from it. Just do what he said. That's Christian life. But, oh, brother, when you tell me that I don't have to do anything, I don't have to bear that cross, there's nothing really to overcome, but all I have to do is just go to church and enjoy life. And you take away all the great demands that God gives. I think you've deceived me. I think you have misled me. But modern man likes that. And the church of the end, again, is described as not being willing to endure sound doctrine and turning its ears away from the truth and turning aside unto man-made stories. Man-made creations. Remember, Jesus said to some people that worked miracles. Wow. Cast out devils. Wow. Did wonderful things. Prophesied to people and so forth. Jesus said to them, I never knew you. 
It's not how busy you are with your life. It's what in your heart is motivating you and guiding you and causing you to propel yourself forward. That's what the Lord wants. Now, the testimony of a converted life is sanctification. That's what our message is about today. Sanctification. Boy, sanctification. That's kind of over our head, isn't it? Well, not really. Sanctification, being sanctified. Doesn't the word sanct mean holy? Yeah. S-A-N-C-T. Sanctified. How about sanctuary? Is this a sanctuary? It begins the same way. See, the word sanct comes from what we get our word saint. There's several different words. The Hebrew, the Greek, and the English all agree that the word sanctify means to set apart, to dedicate, to consecrate, to be pure. These are the things that you get from the word sanctify. A sanctimonious person is a hypocritical saint. You know, one who is full of himself, I guess, and trying to be more holy than everybody else. The church is addressed as saints. Did you know that you're called saints in the Bible? Without Catholic approval that you're called saints? <laughs> Ephesians 1.1, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus was addressed to the saints at Ephesus. See, you become a saint by adding an S to ain't. Either you're a saint or an ain't. But when the true thing, when the true conversion turns around, here's the point. From God's side, when God saves you, he saves you for his purposes so that you can partake of him in order to be what he wants you to be in this world. The example for us to follow is Jesus when Jesus was here, God projected in Jesus the kind of a life that he wants us to live. Now, we can't be a savior and all of that, but he is an example for us to follow in his steps. Isn't that true? It is true. So we begin to look at Jesus, and we begin to see what he wants us to do and the way he wants us to go. And when we go those ways, we are living sanctified. But sanctification is something you are when God calls you out of darkness. You become his property, his purchased possession. Look over in 1 Corinthians 6, if you don't mind. If you don't mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For he says, you are bought with a price. Verse 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? What does that mean? Well, verse 20 answers it. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let me ask you a question. Do you belong to God? Did he purchase you? He didn't have to, did he? There was nothing about you that made you favorable to God because all we like sheep had gone straight. But he purchased us by drawing us out of the miry clay from calling us out of the world. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Now you're learning about what that means, but you didn't choose me. You didn't one day say, you know, I ought to get right with God. I need to get saved. You don't do it that way. This whole salvation thing is of God. God does it his way. 
And the day he does it is the day you need to respond. The grace of God that brings salvation will appear to all of us. And when it comes, you need to respond to it. Or what do you say in Isaiah 55? Call upon the Lord while he is near. While he is near. But the word sanctified, it simply means that you belong to God and by association, you are holy. Many of the sacrifices that were sacrificed to God, the offerings that the people brought to God, because they were dedicated to God, those offerings were holy. They had to be treated in a special way. You are saints. You and I, with all of our flaws, our shortcomings, and our weaknesses, our ineptness and our inabilities, we're saints. Now, we're not saints because we got wings on our back. We're not angels. You know, the backbiters got that, but, but we are saints. We are called holy ones. That's just the name the Bible gives us. But it also implies... As sanctified, see, this word defied means the process of making, the process of bringing forth. You are a saint and you're being brought forth. Sanctified also describes the kind of life you live. Not only do I belong to God and therefore am considered holy because I am his and he is mine. He is associated with me. He brought me out of the miry clay. Call me his own. These whom I give to you, he said, Jesus, these are mine. By virtue of being connected with God, I'm considered to be holy. Not perfect. Perfection is a process. Your whole life will be involved in change from glory to glory to glory to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ and so forth. Your whole life will be a process of perfection. But God brings you to him, and he says, you're mine. You belong to me. Quit fighting me. Quit disagreeing with me. Quit trying to seek some other way. I could have left you alone and judged you in eternity. But I've called you out of darkness into my marvelous light to save you. You're mine. Now I have a direction for you to go, and this is the way that I want you to live. And this is what I want you to know as you go through life. See, the word sanctified and sanctification is also a word, both Hebrew and Greek are words from which we get holiness. Holiness. It says, you know, holiness on this pulpit says holiness to the Lord. It's what we're supposed to do with our life. You're supposed to live a holy life. But see, the concept our mind game, our mental game, because we naturally as Christians try to figure everything out so we're all right. And you tell me I'm supposed to be sanctified. I think my idea of sanctification is way over my head. And holiness? How can anybody be holy? I can see flaws and problems with everybody. I mean, everybody that I know is something that's not holy. I don't want to be everybody's judge, but, you know, I see, you know, a little mistake here or a little mistake. Once a year, they make a mistake. So we have the idea that holiness like perfection. You know, the Bible speaks presenting every man perfect in this life. It's hard for us to process that, to get our mind around that, because how could that be? I mean, I look at me, and I'm still thinking like an unregenerate man. I can't be all these things. How can I be sanctified? How could I be called a saint? How could I be referred to 
as holy. Well, you're still in the Bible, aren't you? First Peter. Go back in the back to First Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he which has called you is holy. Is God holy? So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That's not what you're talking about. Conversation means behavior, mode of living, the way you act. He said, but as he, God, who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all ways and manner of behavior. Because in verse 16, because it is written... Be ye holy, for I am holy. This word holy is translated saints 60 times in the Bible. 60 times the word holy is translated saint. So, saints are to live a holy life. We enter into this life considered to be saints. Considered holy. We're related to God. We are called the holy ones. That doesn't mean we're perfect yet. It doesn't mean that we're without flaws and don't have to repent every now and then yet. Because the more we walk in this new way of living and the challenges that God has before us, conflicts with all the way I was raised to think. Lord, nobody can do that. Remember what Paul said, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind. That's my biggest problem is the way I think. My process of thinking, how I process stuff. I came to the Lord like this. And God says, the problem you're having walking this walk is the way you think. You're trying to figure it all out and come to a conclusion. Yeah, well, I've got that figured. No, you don't. It's one day at a time. Your mind will mislead you. That's how Eve got misled because the devil... Fool with her mind. Didn't he say, hath God said? You know how he would say it? You've heard it before. Come on, Eve. Come on, girl. Hey, hey, Eve, what's happening? I mean, he has a lot of ways he would tell, hey, you're looking good today, Eve. You're looking good. And then he told her when she couldn't eat that fruit, she said, he said, what? What kind of God are you serving? Is that the kind of God you think he is, that you would die because you ate a piece of fruit? You boys believe that? Come on, Eve. And because the mind, listen to me, because the mind is so vulnerable to that kind of talk, that kind of reasoning and logic, we succumb to it, especially if the person talking seems real sure and pretty intelligent. We yield to it. That's what happens to the church. We listen to people instead of God. People talk to us, but if we are the way we should be, we should go check the scripture out to see if what the people say is right. I told you, don't believe it because I've said it. I'm not your conscience. I have to give an answer for what I'm saying, and you'll have to give an answer for what you're hearing. We're all standing before God. This verse, he says, he that's called you is holy. He wants us to be holy. He wants us to aspire to holiness, to a holy life. A holy life is a life that God shows us. Anything that comes from God is holy. 
Would you agree? I hope you do. That when God gives us something to do, this is what God wants us to do. When God gives us the way he wants us to go, this is the way he wants us to go. When God says, you must separate yourself from these things or else, then you must separate yourself from those things. Because something that is holy cannot find its pleasure and enjoyment in things that are unholy. That cannot be your life. You've got to make a decision. It's one of those crossroads where the cross comes in in your life. What are you going to do now? God's tamping with your, oh, man, with your passions and desires. And he's telling you that things have to change. When you think, oh, God, oh, Lord. But to be sanctified, to be holy, it's a dedication, a commitment of your life to God's way. Think of it that way. A decision you make, a choice that you make to commit your life to God, which means I must now search the scriptures. I must now avail myself to what God is saying. I want God to speak to me. And I want to do things his way because here's the challenge. Are you still in the back of the Bible? Come back a couple books to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. You've heard this before. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. The word holiness here, the Greek word, is used 10 times in the New Testament. Five times it's translated holiness. Five times it's translated sanctification. So you could make it either way. You could say it. Follow peace with all men and sanctification without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question because now you've read it. You've heard it. How important is it then that we commit ourselves to living on his terms, which he would call sanctification and holiness? What do you got if you don't? What if somebody talks me out of that? What does it say without which what? Without which no man shall see the Lord. Verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. God is good to us, just don't back off. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Now listen to this. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, that's TV, Hollywood. As Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know afterwards that when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me finish this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, talking about how this moral, pure, committed to the living God's way life is. Chapter 4 and verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, even your holiness. This is the will of God, period, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from what? Fornication. Would I be wrong this morning if I said that people that are living together out of wedlock are living in fornication? 
And then all the inspiration to do that from Hollywood, your friends, your buddies, the social paradigm, the shift in thinking in our society. I mean, come on, everybody's doing it. Do you think it makes it right if everybody does it? Most of the world's going to hell. A few won't. So you can't base what's right on how many are doing it. But he speaks about, well, again, here, he said in verse 3, a fornicator, not only should we abstain from that, he said, but he also tells us that the people that do this will not be granted admission into heaven. I wonder how many churches have people that do live together out of wedlock. I'm wondering how many churches kids are messing around today and then coming to church. I wonder. I wonder how many people think it's okay today to do that kind of stuff. Because it's popular. It's trendy. All the neat people on TV and Hollywood, all the famous, the winners of prizes, they do it. They don't even get married anymore. They just, me and my boyfriend or me and my girlfriend or whoever. Well, now men saying boyfriend, but me and my girlfriend had a baby. And everybody's so happy and all of it. Kid born out of, you know, like that. And the church has it in the church. The preacher knows if he says something about it, somebody important is going to try to get him fired because that important man's kids are living together. So he begins to back off as unconverted people will back off. They will back away. They will leave you to your sin to give themselves some relief and peace at your expense. You're going to be judged. But he wants his money. He wants his fame, wants to be considered that kind brother in the pulpit and all that. So he lets you do what you want to do. And yet sin, sin is killing the church. Sin is killing the world, and they make so light of it. Their shame is gone. Walking around, you know, out of wedlock, dressed in all these different things and acting the way they act, and nobody says anything about it. And they're not even ashamed. They don't blush. You know that people don't blush anymore? People can disrobe and show parts of their body. I guess they want to. I mean, you come into marriage, and uh, the marriage union is full of uncleanness because the world talks about it. They engage in all kinds of things that they shouldn't. In their homes, they don't think a thing about it. Well, you know, everybody's doing that. It's still wrong. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I know you don't mind doing this because you paid a lot for your Bible, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to this. I just want to point out some things that are not part of a sanctified life. None of this belongs to sanctification. Verse 9, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Don't be misled by anybody, neither will these inherit it. Who? Well, listen to them. One is fornicators. You're not going to heaven. You're not going to make it. You're rejected. You want to do what you're doing? Do it. 
but don't expect to go to heaven. Well, whew. Nor idolaters. Boy, you can make a lot out of that too. Nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Now, there's so much of that today that you can't ignore it. Men marrying men. Men marrying men. Now, what kind of nonsense is that? When does Adam and Steve get married? Well, you know, man to man. And then Eve is marrying Eve. Eve is marrying Eve. And all the important people and the politicians who are my age should know better. They grew up in a different time than that. And here they are saying, well, you know, it was over. I didn't understand that either. And it comes in the church. Now they have churches where that's the church is built around that. See, I believe homosexuality is wrong. I believe homosexuality is active fornication between two people, whether the same sex or opposite sex. They're caught either way. My problem is the fact that that's sin. That's my problem with it. Not the way they press around or not the way they talk or not the way they conduct their affairs. It's just the fact that it's sin. It is wrong. It is not wrong because I said it's wrong. It's not wrong because I think it's wrong. It's not wrong because I don't agree with it. It's wrong because the Bible says it's wrong. He says it right here. The verse you just read in verse 9. You got a dictionary, a strong concordance? Go home and look up the word effeminate. It means soft. Or go look up the word abusers of themselves with mankind. It talks about homosexuals. And they hate to hear this. See, this is another one of those verses. This is what the Bible says, but they don't want the Bible to say that. Explain it away and we'll go to your church. Make it mean something else. Rest the scriptures for us. And you realize the more you won't do anything but say what this says, how unpopular and how narrow you must really sound to the world and how unpopular you really are and how people are going to gossip and talk about you. Oh, they're going to say it. Let them say it. But these also, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, thieves. We had one climb through that window over there. He's in here. He's in verse 10. Unless he gets saved, he's part of the deal here. Thieves. Or covetous. Oh, I could say something about that. Drunkards, revelers, partiers, extortioners. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the very next verse. But such was some of you. Now, let me say this to everything I just said about all the people. You know that there's hope for them. There's hope. Listen to this. You, some of you were like that. At such were some of you, but you have been washed. You kidding me? No. I mean, you were once one of those idolaters, revelers, party crazy or effeminate, and you got saved, is what he said. Such as were some of you. You mean I used to drink a lot and carry on ahead and did a lot of... Yeah. You too. 
God knew that when he brought you out of darkness. He knew exactly what he was getting when he saved you. He knew how putrid and ugly and vile your life was when he saved you. And he brought that to him anyway because only he can change it. And he doesn't reject you if you turn your heart to him. But he doesn't allow you to live the way you've lived either. He wants to change your life or you will fail the grace of God. It's your choice. You live by choices. You've got a will. It got you in trouble. It'll bring you to what's right. We all live by our will. You know that. Everybody in this room is what you are right now because of the choices that you have made in your life, whether you're indifferent or you're eager. That was your decision. But he said, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the Lord. How are we then going to live a sanctified life? Well, the first thing you have to do is sanctify the Lord in your heart. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it says this, but sanctify in your heart, I'll put it that way, sanctify in your heart where your desires are, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. You come to the Lord. Let's say that we can't see him, we can't hear him, we can't touch him. We have no physical relationship with him, but he's here. He said he would be, so we believe that. It's all about faith. We believe he's here. We believe he's here now. Where two or more are gathered, he's here. He's in this room with us. Now, I believe there are angels in this room. I can't see them, and I don't worship them, but I believe they're here. I believe it's all part of God's plan on bringing us where he wants us to be. These angels are ministering spirits. They come to minister for those who are heirs of salvation. They have a role that they play. Sometimes they bring information. You know, angels did that. They protect you and they keep you. God sends them. Didn't he say that God will give charge to his angels concerning you? That they will keep you in all of your ways? Doesn't it say that? Well, then they do that. They're here. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the head government. He said, they're there. They're present. I can't see them, but I know they're here. I don't know what I'd do if I did see one. We might have an empty preacher. <laughs> you know, so I wish, wish God would touch me. I'm probably if he did, we'd make a new door somewhere. But we have to believe. Our faith is as important to God as a visible reality. We must believe that he's here. And if Jesus is here as he said that he would be, then he becomes our focus. We said that last week. He becomes the focus of what we should do and what we should not do. Now, if I want to know what he wants, then i got to find out what he says. And that brings me today to the conclusion. I want to say this. There are three things that bring about a sanctified life, three things that God gives, three elements of a sanctified life. Three things that God points us to, leads us to. The first one is his word. If you want to live a holy life, you have to go to the word. You cannot dream up some ideal. You cannot have in your heart some lofty goal to pursue and hope that this will please God. Or surely, surely God would be pleased with this. 
No, sir, you have to find out what it says in the Word. My friend in Indiana, years and years ago where I grew up, I taught one night on faith. His name was Jack. We called him Jackie. Jackie was just started coming to church. He was one of the few people that I knew was worse than I was. I guess he had turned his life around. He was coming to church, and he wanted to learn. And I was teaching on faith one night about how faith brings blessing. And he had a problem with that because of the way he'd been taught. There was something that was lodged in his thinking that he couldn't give up because it didn't make sense. He assumed that if you work hard in the church, if you try to be good and kind and nice and help people, if you do this, if you do that, if you do all of these things, he said, then you get blessed. But see, I told him that the teaching was what things ever you desire when you pray, believe you have received them, and you'll get them. Well, his uncle and his aunt were the most godly people he ever saw. And they never got anything. He said they both were sick all the time and they were broke and they never had much, but they loved the Lord. They loved his church. You see, that's the way he thinks. And I said, the Bible says, in spite of what you just said, Jackie, the Bible said, Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe, you have received it and you shall have it. Now, you're going to tell me that they prayed all the time. Well, people do pray all the time, but it's not praying. It's believing. When you pray, believe, he said. Not when you pray, keep on praying, and then get down and then holler at God, and then, then with all your passion and emotion and all the drama you can. Oh, God! That's not what gets the job done. What gets the job done is believing with your heart. Before I even ask the Lord, I have to find out, is this God's will what I'm going to pray for? Is the well-being of my body God's will? He bore our pains and carried our diseases. The Bible says that. Or in Psalm 107, 20, he sent his word and healed them. Or Proverbs 4, 22, he said, his word is medicine to my flesh. I have to believe that's God's will. How much clearer does he have to say it? The prayer of faith heals the sick. He put gifts of healings in the church. Of course it's his will. Are we going to be well in heaven? Thy will be done where? Here? As it is where? Will we be well there? Then I think we'd be better off being well here. You've got to get your thinking straightened out. We're thinking wrong. We've assumed we're supposed to be sick. We've assumed we're supposed to be broke. We've assumed we're supposed to hit them in the mouth if they don't talk right. We've assumed that. I grew up like that. That's the way it was. But then the word of God begins to come in. No, 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 no. All of that has to go to the cross. You've got to crucify all of that. Because the new way I want you to live is right here. In fact, about preachers said, if they speak not, how close are you to the book of Ephesians? Well, not too far. We'll turn to Ephesians 5 then. Ephesians 5. Listen to what he says there about his church. He said, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it 
so that he might what? Sanctify and cleanse. Now let me add what I didn't add a while ago whenever we started. The word sanctify means to set apart, to be separated. If God saved you, he has set you apart for what? For his glory. For his glory. If God saved Caleb, he saved Caleb for his glory. He had a purpose. He had a design, a plan. Not what he was doing. I don't care about his, his education or how smart or rich he was. None of that matters. God has a plan for a person's life. He doesn't have to use your talents. He could. But that ain't why he saved you. He brought you to himself and you become his. And now he wants to set you apart and do a work in you that what he sets you apart to do will glorify his work. For me to live, say, is Christ. Is Christ. That's what Paul said. For me to live is Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. What other life is right? I'm not trying to figure out how we should run this church or how we should. Do. For me, it's one day at a time. Get along with the Lord. What is he saying? Do I understand that? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to do it? If I don't hear anything from that, I just go preach the word. And most of the time it comes out while I'm preaching. Oh, I see. That's what you want us to do. But God has a way of speaking to us. He does. He has a way of getting his information over to us. But see it. He said to the church that Christ gave himself for us, that he might sanctify and cleanse this church with the washing of water by the word. What does the word do? It cleanses, doesn't it? You know what Jesus said about us in the gospel of John? He said, Lord, sanctify them. He's talking about us. He said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. How are we going to be set apart? Set apart to what? To whatever it says. To live the way the word of God tells us to live. God honors his word above his name. You can't get any higher than that. But the word of God, this is the first thing that he brings to us. Remember in Acts chapter 20, Paul met with the elders at Ephesus. They kind of met outside of town. He got them all together. Maybe they were in town. I don't know. They didn't have a lot of buildings to meet in then. They had to meet somewhere else. And he got his elders together, and he was telling them where he was going, what he'd been doing. He says, now, brethren, he said, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. He said, I commend you to the word, which is able to do that. This is what's going to set you apart. The things you used to do, you don't do anymore because you can't do that and do what God wants. So you begin to consecrate yourself. You begin to commit yourself. There is a desire to be what God wants you to be. And if you're not that, then there's something wrong. Take the second thing, purging. Purging. In a great house, he says there's not only gold and silver, but in a great house, that's you, there are things in there that need to be changed and gotten rid of, wood, hay, and stubble. 
And he said these words, 2 Timothy 2, if a man will purge himself from these things, he shall be. What shall he be? He said, well, he shall be a vessel sanctified, set apart, holy, dedicated to living the way God wants him to live, finding his strength in God to whom he gives glory. That's the way he lives. But he has to purge himself. Now, what if in all your church life, you're not concerned about whether or not you're purged? Cleansed. The word means to be cleansed. Maybe I should ask you all a question this morning. How many of you think that everybody that comes to Christ has a little dirt in the house? I mean, everybody except you, of course. How do I discover dirt? I listen. I give the more earnest heed. I pay attention to what God is saying. The preacher may not identify your dirt, but while he is preaching, what will the Spirit do? He'll identify dirt. I mean, I didn't say it, but the way the Spirit of God informs your mind, you find yourself going, oh, man, oh, I just thought of something. I just thought of something. Don't write me a note and blame me for that. You just found something that God showed you about your life. This is not right. You're wrong. You got a bad attitude. You're not being fair. And I didn't say that. The Spirit of God showed you that. That's that working of the Spirit to his purchased possession. To bring to your information, bring to your mind, bring to light things about you that have to change. God saved you as a dog. You were a dirty dog. And then little by little, every day, he begins changing you. He's changing me. My blessed Savior, I'm still pretty much the same old person that I always was. How many of you know that we're not the same person we used to be? Only for one reason, because we're changing. Change has to do with getting rid of something, giving up something. That's the purging process. My eyes are opened. I begin to see things I haven't seen before. I begin to make some big decisions. I have a hard time making this decision. Lord, help me. I got to go home and think about this. I can't get away from it. It's like the hound of heaven. Everywhere I go, there's this, this word keeps following me. I get into conversation. I turn the radio on. Somebody talks about it. Oh, God. You need to go to the woodshed, friend. You need to go to the garden. You need to go somewhere where you make that big quality decision to turn away from this particular thing in your life that God's going to judge. Give it up and turn back around to God. You have got to purge yourself. Cleansing has to take place in all of us. We all have things that have to be cleansed. And God uses his word to cleanse us. And he said we have to make that decision ourselves. And thirdly, as we close, another thing that God will use in our sanctification is separation. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. I'm sure you've heard this before. I hope you have. I hope you've been in church enough that you're familiar with it. I hope you've listened enough that you can almost 
follow with your lips what's being said. Verse 14, he said, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, you may be married to one, and there's not much you can do about it right now except read 1 Peter 3. If you have a husband has a wife that does not obey the word, he may, without a word from his wife, be one as he beholds her chaste conversation mixed with holiness and so forth. But anyway, that's another sermon. But verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That might be that club you join. Maybe it's that political party. Huh. Maybe it's part of the party you say you're a part of. Let me tell you something else. I cannot understand what role a Christian thinks he has in politics. I don't get it. The reason I don't get it is because we're not here to serve the world and the unregenerates in the world. We're not here to please them and try to find ways to get elected by them to do their bidding. Our standard of living is way above that. They're persecuted. They will reject us. You don't care. You're not here. But I cannot help. And yet I see Christians all the time involved in politics. But he says in verse 14 again, what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion has light with darkness, a saved and an unsaved person? And what concord or friendship does Christ have with the devil? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel or an unregenerate? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. You think about that. And, he goes on to say, and I will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and my daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. When do we have this refreshing experience of this new way of life? When you make a decision to turn away from everything that God's going to judge. Because if you're a part of it, you get judged too. Have enough wisdom in you to know that you can't do that and serve the Lord. you got to walk away from it. You're going to be around unregenerates and unsaved people all the time. You talk to them, may do a favor for them and all that. But they're not your buddies you run around with, I don't think. Because eventually you'll have to modify what you believe in order to keep from offending them. And so he said... Do you not know, James says, the Bible says, do you not know that friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God? That God doesn't hold you to be dear to his heart if you're a buddy of the world? You know better than that. But you live by choices. That was a choice that you made. See, pure religion, James writes, pure religion is to keep yourself unspotted from the world. There's a whole lot to that. If I'm going to confess today that God called me in 1968 to be his, and on that day, the process began. That day, God made me his. He referred to me as a saint. Saintliness has been a struggle on many occasions. 
Many times things have popped up I thought I had been delivered from, and I have to redo that. But if I want to please God, the only way I can is by walking with him on his terms. That's what Christianity is, is living on his terms. That's what God wants. Anything else I think is wrong. This is the way the Lord wants us to live. If any man be in Christ, what is he? He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Is that true with you? Bow your head then. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we are grateful and we are thankful that you've called us out of darkness. We're sorry that we lag behind sometime and that we drag our feet. We ask that you would forgive us and continue to deal with us. As we approach this time of communion with the bread and the cup, reflecting on the greatest thing that has ever been done for us, give us a moment to be grateful. Give us a moment to say thank you for Jesus and for what he's done. And give us a moment, Lord, to bear down and to get serious about living on his terms. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.